VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Ruck, everybody. This is the first of two Rucks this week. Later in the week, Owen Slot will be talking to Dylan Hartley, whose book is just about to emerge. We'll hear about the controversies, the sides of, a, of an angry character. But enough about Slotty, because we'll also be hearing about Dylan Hartley. The season started for nearly 30 years on September the 1st. Here we are, slap bang in the middle of the old one. And here's a quote from Dylan's book. Rugby is great for the soul, but terrible for the body. Well said, Dylan. We've got a fantastic panel today. If you could only see them yourselves, they look absolutely magnificent. Even Mike, our producer, looks absolutely good, nice enough to eat. We've got Lawrence Denalio. He's gone up to six foot ten today after a match at the wreck in Bath yesterday. One of the most remarkable, I think, I've ever seen. Also, we have a man who rivals Adam Hathaway as the king of Fleet Street. In fact, you could call him probably the queen of Fleet Street. Chris Jones. And I reckon you must have done about a thousand miles this week covering rugby. Would that be fair? Uh, yeah, that would be right, Steve. Yeah, we've been uh, on the hunt for a fully loaded team. We've seen lots of dodgy looking teams playing in the uh, Premiership. But you and I saw uh, Sale recapture their uh, former selves. And uh, they looked good, didn't they? And... Uh, it's, uh, it's good to see a full-strength a full side out for once. I was also at Gloucester, where uh, Leicester's fourth team turned up in the first half and their second team made it for the second half. So it's, uh, it's a bit like sort of Russian roulette you know, when it comes to selection at the moment. It's, it's a very strange premiership. Yesterday, Wash played at the wreck against Bath. Bath were favourites for the game, and um, especially so when Wash incredibly lost four players injured, I think, in the first half an hour. Lawrence, uh, you weren't working uh, yesterday at the game, but it must have struck you as one of the Wash's greatest performances, or at least greatest wins, for several years. Yeah, it was an extraordinary game. I was watching it here at home on the TV, and... Um... As you say, it was a, a big, big match for both sides. You know, Bath unbeaten in their opening three games, looking ominously impressive with a big, strong forward pack. And, uh, and for Wasps, obviously, you know, a flying start in the opening two games and then came unstuck against Sale. So, so big, big match. And whoever won would, would take a, a step into the top four, which is, uh, again, really important. I think Bath were, were fourth, Wasps were fifth. And as you say, just a, an incredible start, really, from Wasps. They went 13 points down through a bit of sloppy play themselves and then suddenly had to, had, had to deal with this kind of a, 
horrendous in- injury list, including losing their first two choice hookers. So uh, I think it was a performance of real character and, and, and real resilience. And uh, I think Lee Blackett, the coach, used the word adaptability. I think the the game management, particularly from Umanga uh, and Robson, was outstanding. Defensively, you know, Jack Willis, heroic, deserves all the plaudits he got. But but I thought just they, they played very intelligently, really. And, and I think Bath are a very strong side. They, they've, they've come a long way. I just think maybe they'll, they'll reflect and, and think that in the attacking half of the field, they've they probably got to do a little bit more. But uh, yeah, listen, a, a great, great victory for, for Wasps. I'm sure they won't get carried away. They've got a horrendous injury list now uh, and they've got uh, the small matter of Saracens uh, next week. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of movement in that top four, certainly over the, uh, the run into the end of the season. I know that uh, pure passion alone can't win games, Lawrence, but there was something almost otherworldly about the, the, the sheer passion and tenacity of the team. Obviously, they had to adapt in, in, technically, but... And there was something, it was reflected on the final whistle where they reacted as if they'd won the cup. So someone somewhere there has really injected Wasps with a massive passion. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, you know, the way that they've played since, uh, well, since Lee Blackett's taken over, to be honest with you, and obviously since the, the rugby restarted, there's, there, there's a real togetherness about that squad, isn't there? That, uh, that possibly... Uh, is the hallmark of a side that really wants to work hard for each other, from Joe Launchbury to to you know to Dan Robson, all the way through the team to whoever comes on the field, and and I think it was epitomised to me by the try that they scored when they went the length of the field. I think it was the Tom West try where they were on their own line defending a six, uh, you know a succession of Bath five metre scrums, and they repelled Bath and then literally went the the other end of the field through some very smart play and finished with uh, with Tom West the. Uh, the prop slash I don't want to play hooker who got <laughs> over the line. And, uh, and yeah, and, and I think it was a, a really good victory. Coming from behind in games um, gives you that, that kind of confidence moving forward. And as you say, I think it was summed up very well by, by Jack Willis on, on the final whistle. So a, a big win for them uh, over, over one of their rivals. But as I said, a long way to go. Wasps have got a pretty tough run in to the end of the season, as has everyone, but Wasps particularly. And, uh, you know, week to week, I think the picture will change. I mean, there's, there's no change at the very top. Exeter are head and shoulders the best side in the country at the moment, and they're going to take some stopping. And I'd be interested to hear from both of you who who we think can do that. But um, there'll be a bit of change in the picture from um, between now and the end of the season. But you'd expect Wasps to pick up enough points to certainly be uh, challenging for that top four. Chris, Lawrence mentioned there, Dan Robson. You've covered uh, every England game in living, living memory and you, 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 know, you realise that Ben Young's apart, perhaps, that the cover's been slightly bare. I thought Dan Robson was right back on form. But how do you rate him and how do you rate his chances of uh, finally getting into that team, England team? Well, if anybody deserves a chance, I mean, Robson being ruled out because of all things, you know, you know DVT, who would have guessed that? He was just flying at that moment. And he looks like he's got that, that spark back again. And we do look to an England scrum half who can break close to the, you know, you know, the breakdown again because we, we've been missing that because it was in part of Ben Young's game, wasn't it? But then it sort of went away and he sort of got it back a little bit. But, you know, everybody knows how Ben's going to play. I've been really impressed with Spencer this year. I think going to Bath has given him that, that uh, ability to, to, to grow as a, as a player. And he's got that kicking game 
which you could argue that, that Robson probably doesn't have, mainly because he's been understudying the greatest in the world in, in Wigglesworth at, at Saracens for so long. But I think that Robson at the moment is demanding a chance to show, particularly in, in how many games it will be in November, that he has got that little spark of something, that, that danger for the, for the opposition, that he's going to break and hurt you close when he goes on those tap and goes. It, it's great to see him add that momentum to what is a very fast-moving Wasps game. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed watching him this season. And I, I think that he has been central to that because he's confident. And most importantly, Steve, he's fit. Yeah, I, I just thought he was, he was wonderful. And uh, Jacob Umanga, I mean, let's not put too much pressure. I mean, my God, he's a steely customer. Bath would be absolutely gutted that they didn't win that and possibly really should have done. But there are two other items. First of all, it's not a new thought, but I just thought Wayne Barnes was, was majestic as a referee. If you go back through the game, uh, I don't think he got one single major call wrong. And also, we should remember that Sarah Cox was on the touchline. The first woman to be an assistant referee in the in the Premiership, and uh, I loved it when she called out to, to, Bart, to Wayne Barnes offside, and um, she spotted an offside, and therefore became the first assistant referee to spot an offside since about 1962. <laughs> she called it, so did Barnsey, and we had an offside. And what could be better or easier than assistant referees looking for offside? Right, we're going to go up north now uh, to Sail Sharks. We've got no shortage of opinion on that game because all three of us were there. Lawrence, what, how big was this sense of devaluing uh, because Bristol had the second team? Because I still thought that Sale showed some stuff that was worthy of mention. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we have to remind ourselves the situation, the unprecedented situation. Basically, what we're doing is we're playing a quarter of the season in effectively about eight, eight to ten weeks. And, and that means that these, all these teams have, are playing um, six games in the space of 23, 24 days. So uh, inevitably, whether we like it or not, coaches have got a devil's task having to select the right team for the right game. That, you know, you just simply cannot put out the same players. We've seen, you know, extra change, 14 out of 15 players. You know, every coach is having to, to, to shuffle his pack. And I suppose what the challenge for the directors of rugby coaches will be, which are the games that they must win and which are the games that they can win? And I think the games fall into those two categories. And naturally, crowds or no crowds, the must-win games tend to be the home games. And the can-win games tend to be the away games. And then, unfortunately, I think Bristol have, have, have also started very well with restart. I think the other thing you have to carefully point out is that in their opening few games, they've played Exeter and Saracens, which in itself you know, takes an enormous toll on, on resources. So, inevitably, uh, there's a, under the guidelines set out by the professional game board, Pat Lamb had to sh- had to shuffle his pack around, and when you when you saw the the team sheets on paper, you know, Sale buoyed by the victory against Wasp, but yet still able to put out you know a star-studded World Cup winning side, you kind of felt that this was going to be one-way traffic right from the start, and that's that, that's the way it turned out to be. Sale had the bonus point uh, on 32 minutes, which uh, in itself t- tells the tale, really. So, uh, you know, I thought Bristol hang on in there, you, you know, again. 13 out of their starting 15 were under the age of 23. And whilst it was a painful lesson for them to learn, I'm sure that the uh, longer term, the, the, you know, the benefit, the experience that those players will gain from, from, from that environment, from, from having to dig deep, was there. And good to see Sale back to winning ways. You know, Faf de Klerk playing exceptionally well. The Curry brothers playing exceptionally well. And there's no doubt that 
when they put their full side out, they've got the, uh, you know, the quality, whether they've got the, the temperament and the experience, we're, we're not quite sure yet, but they've got the quality to really, um, you know, challenge for a serious title this season. Yeah, don't forget, as, as Lawrence said, don't forget the, the, the demands of the, uh, of the competition. Since we last came to you on the rack, there have been two rounds of the, of the tournament. Uh, obviously, that brilliant Exeter win at Bristol with, with the second team. Chris, you were at Sale. What did you see that you thought, well, actually, that would have been good against any opposition? As much as I've done, I've done six so far since the restart. And the disparity between the first choice team and the second or third choice team for many of the clubs has been stark, except, I think, for Exeter and Sale to lesser extent Saracens. And the reason that Sale are so good is because he, he's gone and got out and got some real quality players, but he's got almost two for each position. And the only area where I see them having a slight problem until they get Josh Bowman back, and he's almost back from a terrible knee injury, and they just brought in Cobus Visa from South Africa, not the massive Cobus Visa, but the slightly more acceptable Cobus Visa, um, <laughs> is that they will have another middle line jumper because at the moment it's all about what Lude gets them in, in, in the lineup. They, they, with that, with Brent Evans retired, sales, yeah, Achilles heel is they only have one world class jumper. And you, know, you can take them on at the lineup and, and remove a lot of their you know, first phase ball. And if they get Beaumont back or Visa up and running to, uh, as quickly as they want to, I think they've got two teams over at Sale who can keep them picking up the points they need to finish second. And I would, I would expect them to finish second. I was disappointed with Bristol because they, they gave some of the youngsters a go. But you know, it's almost like caught in the headlight stuff, isn't it? And you, you, is the premiership at this stage of the season meant to be a development league? I don't think it is, but it's being forced upon directors of rugby's to, to turn it into a development league and, and guys are being exposed and what they thought was a strong squad and remember Sale operate on one of the smaller squads in the premiership you know it's being shown that, that these some of these kids are not ready yet you've done a lot of games Lawrence has done a heck of a lot of games and do you still find it faintly bizarre I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about I, I took the train up to Sale on the way back and got on at Stockport and uh, I think it was about a 12 coach train and there were seven people on it and, you know, it just makes you realise that we are still fighting the virus success, successfully in the sense of getting these games on. But, Lawrence, are you still finding it a slightly weird experience or you just got used to it now? It's definitely weird and not in any way enjoyable in the sense mm. that, uh, you know, sport without, without fans is like, you know, bread without butter, quite frankly. They don't go together. You know, they, I mean, as in they don't go, they don't go apart, sorry. They, they really do go together. And, and uh, so, so the sooner we, we get back to having some, uh, so, some people in the stadium, and I know we're going to talk about that, you know, this coming week, Harlequins uh, against Bath uh, is going to mm-hmm. be one of the DCMS pilots, um, you know, trials, if you like. And I think they're, they're trying to get just under 4,000 um, fans into a, into a capacity stadium at the stoop of 15,000. But no, I'm not particularly enjoying it. And I think the a bigger concern clearly is that there's, a, there, there's an acute worry and an anxiety for people to travel on public transport at the moment, you know, which is why we're not, so, or, or there's just no need for people necessarily to travel at the minute. So uh, it definitely feels weird out there. Interestingly, I, I came home on the, on the train back from Sale and we were in the same carriage as, as quite a few of the Man United uh, players um, who had obviously decided that... Um, that they might uh, they, they might have a couple of days break down in London, and uh, I just thought to myself, it was quite refreshing to see uh, the likes of Brandon Williams and Marcus Rashford on a train, you know, going down to London on their own. You know, it was it was good. 
we'll come back to the the situation in uh, of, of COVID shortly. But uh, Harlequins did beat uh, Northampton. Chris, I think if you're a Northampton fan, you would have been joyous at the start of the season. As the weeks go by, you feel a lot less joyous. There's something not quite right there. Steve, January the 12th is a very important date for uh, Northampton fans because that's the last time they won at home. They beat Benetton. If they lose to Exeter on Friday night at home, which is, yeah, which is on the cards, that will be the sixth successive Premiership match that Northampton have lost at home. Now, this used to be one of the, the stadiums that you hated going to as a player, yeah. just as, a, as you're saying about Welford Road as well. Those two uh, arenas, you know, minus fans, you could argue it makes a big difference, yes, but those two teams are losing the ability to scare people about coming to their, their patch. You know, Northampton, it is, it's one of the strangest scenarios of this restart. They can't win at home. It's, it's remarkable. And, and you know, they're still pushing. You know, they're, they're in sixth place. They're pushing to, you know, to get top four what, by not winning at home. It's, it's, it's remarkable. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, if they suddenly start playing better away because goodness knows they don't like Franklin Gardens at the moment. They're a head scratch at the moment because they're in a bit of a hole. You know, Chris Boyd has admitted as much. When, you know, I obviously watch a lot of rugby and, and observe what's going on and they play between the 22, between the, the two 22s, they actually play some really good rugby. Statistically, they're, they're in good shape, etc. But their big problem is, uh, is either side of that. When they allow opposition teams to get into their own 22, they're struggling to, to keep them out. And, and worryingly, when they get into the opposition 22, they, they don't seem to have the, the answer to, un, to unlock the bigger, tougher defences. And uh, I, I look at their squad, you know, when they split their squad, they don't seem to have the, de- the depth across either of those squads to, to really challenge. You know, you, uh, look, I wouldn't want to be a director of rugby now. Chris Boyd's got a very tough job, but, you know, in many ways, you know, he's got to choose the games he wants to win and, and almost stack his team yeah. a little bit stronger. You know, why not play Tamana Harrison, Courtney Laws, and Nick Azikwe in the same pack. Because I think by splitting their team into, you know, two sides, I, I, don't, I think they, they get caught between two stools. They, they need, they've neither got enough firepower to take on the bigger sides or, or, or enough adaptability to, to, to take on some of the other sides. So, as I said, it, it's a tough job. I think they're missing Kobus Reinach more than ever before. He yeah. scored seven tries before he left. They won six out of the first eight games of the season. Uh, and they've only won two out of the next eight. So uh, they are struggling. There's no doubt that Alex Mitchell and a lot of other players there are going to be, you know, premiership players for many years to come. But you can't suddenly, you know, parachute that experience in straight away. I think Nick Ezekwe is a good signing for them. God, I'd love to see that as a permanent signing rather than him returning to Saracens because I think his own development will, will come on leaps and bounds in the same way as Jonesy talks about uh, Ben Spencer at Bath. I think it's a really big thing for England, for Eddie Jones particularly, to move some of these players around and to see them grow and develop individually. And I think, look, Chris Boyd will get it right, but in many ways, some of these teams are, have got to treat the remainder of this season as a pre-season for next season. And I, and I mean that in a sense that, you know, they can experiment, they can trial things out, they can learn lessons so that they hit the ground running when we start the Premiership, Gallagher Premiership, at the beginning of next season, which is only a matter of weeks away or, or, or only a few months away. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
interesting loss to Leicester was uh, your other reporting game. A lot of points, a lot of tries, some good action. Was that uh, because of the clash of the two teams or for some other reason? First 51 minutes of that match were, were fantastic examples of, of why, and I've spoken to Lawrence about this before, about, about the Wasp influence is, is going to make an, a really positive effect on, on Gloucester. They, they've got a little bit of grunt up front, which is great. So you're giving good front football to Sips. And, and he was, he was playing, playing off 12 trees. You know, 12 trees was taking the ball and then doing the double track uh, attack. So Sips were behind him then pulling off his, his wonderful handiwork and his little chips through. And they looked absolutely world beaters. And, you know, and Leicester, with their fourth team, were, were struggling to, 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 to basically stay on to stay with zero because uh, they were being torn apart. Uh, but Cipriani went off after 51 minutes. Leicester bring on some experience in George Ford, Ben Youngs. Tafur was fantastic when he came on. And the dynamic changed because Gloucester sat on their lead and just completely lost the momentum. And without Cipriani at, at 10, it was obvious that they hadn't regained what they needed to. And uh, yeah, okay, at the end, it was six, seven minutes ago, they got a, a very important try, which, which allowed them to pull away. But they were 36-6 up, and suddenly it was 36-30. And we're going, you know, we're, a, a Gloucester on the pitch. You know, where did they disappear at halftime? Uh, but, uh, all, you know, well done to Leicester. But again, it took some of the Leicester first-team guys to give their youngsters the sort of experience and heart and belief that was so badly lacking. And that's because Borthwick and Murphy are giving their squad a chance and they're discovering that they've got a lot of good youngsters in there, but boy, they're not going to achieve anything without the seriously experienced guys like Ford and Youngs and Tafua in there to help out. But the thing is, Chris, it's still difficult for me to, to, to work out what their first team is. Because when they've picked what they think is a first team, doesn't actually look that dominating in in any case. So, I mean, do we think that Borthwick, Steve Borthwick, has really got a probably a bigger job to do than anyone can dream of? I haven't been impressed with Leicester at all for some time last season. Exactly, yeah, they finished eleventh last year. They're eleventh this year. <laughs> there is no improvement you can see, and yeah, you know, uh, and Lawrence will will testify to this that a Leicester without a, a really horrible horrible pack. Is no Leicester at all. I think it's a, I think it's a, a longer term fix, Steve. To, to answer your question, of all the new coaches, of which there's there's quite a few coming into the, the Premiership, and you know a bit of a bit of a change around. You look at the the you look at historically what's happened at Leicester. They've had four directors of rugby in and out the revolving door coaches, whatever you want to call them, since Richard Cockrell departed. And so there's been no continuity in terms of the the language and messaging to the players. Added to that, I think that their recruitment policy, for whatever reason, is uh, is not been great. You know, they've recruited a lot of players. You you look at who's left recently: the likes of Gonover, the likes of Vianu, the likes of Tamua. Real quality, but there's no point having all that. Or you know, Johnny May's gone back to Gloucester. No point having all that quality if you can't win the ball and you can't you know play in a certain way. So I think Steve undoubtedly is a, is, a, is, a, is a very good appointment for them, Steve Borthwick. I think it's a long-term appointment. But I think for Leicester fans, they've got to be patient because I think it's going to take two or three recruitment process before, before Steve's got the sort of players that he really wants at that squad, you know, in that squad. We know how intense he is. The challenge will be when you've only got players for four weeks, you can really work them very hard. When you've got, you know, in an international window, when you've got players for 11 months, 
you, you, you can work them hard, but you've got to, you've got to pick your moments. So I think it's going to be a learning curve for Steve. It's going to be a, a, a patient job for Leicester fans. They will get there and we all hope they do because a vibrant and strong Leicester Tigers is great for the Premiership, but it is going to take a bit of time. We'll come back to the Premiership when we talk about Harlequins and their gate on uh, Saturday, their crowd. Um, but uh, just to wrap up, uh, Exeter on 64 and well away. Sailor on 50, Bristol on 48, Worcester on 47, Bath on 45. Those five are away. But let's be fair, it's a brutal time of the season. But uh, the, the, the race for fourth is going to be unbelievably exciting. Obviously, a lot, so much depends on team selections and those people who still got uh, games left in them under the, under the strictures. So we'll see. On the weekend uh, was the last regular season of the Pro 14. And it's left us with the following semi-final lineup: Leinster versus Munster, Edinburgh versus Ulster. Edinburgh going really well. Um, I guess the only thing is those two uh, semi-finals to me look like foregone conclusions, but that does give you Leinster-Edinburgh uh, final, which would be great. Chris, you know Richard Cockrell very well. Worked with him, or at least um, listened to him for so many years at Leicester. He has been the, the, the guru behind the Edinburgh Rise because they were almost a joke for a long time. Has he, has he redeemed his reputation up in Edinburgh, which was somewhat tarnished at Leicester? Absolutely. Look, he's Marmite, isn't he? I mean, Richard does polarise opinion uh, because he'll tell you exactly what he thinks. And you know, he started the build-up already to this match at Ulster saying, oh, we're a bit lightweight you know, when we lost to Glasgow. We're underpowered, you know. But the, you know, I think the boys will be okay. He knows exactly how his players are going to play in this semi-final. He says it's the biggest game uh, that Edinburgh have had. You know, it's an opportunity to get into the final of the Pro 4, which is fantastic for them because they were just also rounds. He came along, grabbed them by the scruff of the neck, gave them the, 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 the cockerel treatment, got their forwards going really well, got their self-belief right up there now. And, you know, also won't be uh, very enthusiastic uh, yeah, about playing them because uh, yeah, he will have them absolutely raring to go. And you know, the semi-finals, you're right, yeah, Lenser will be too good for Munster. And what an awful injury for R.G. Snyman. Just, just after he won his first line out, after seven minutes, he goes down and is out for six months. You know, and that was a massive loss for Munster because yeah, Munster and Lenser are the number one team in Europe. So unless you're fully loaded, you've got no chance against them at the moment. So... Yeah, I think uh, that uh, Cockers will have his team in the uh, in the final, and he'll absolutely love it. And the build-up for the press will be fantastic. There is big talk in Pro 14 of absorbing the four huge South African franchises, not the two that are in there at the moment, the Southern Kings and the and the Cheetahs, but the four big ones, and to have a sort of joint league with them all. Now, is it is that fool's gold? Is that really a possibility? Can you have a league? in which four of the teams come from a different hemisphere? I think before COVID, I'd, I'd have been a bit more hesitant to, to suggest that, uh, that, that it could work. But I think uh, since, since the coronavirus pandemic, I think it's forced everyone to think outside the box and think a bit differently. I didn't really like the original idea of the Cheetahs and the Kings playing in the, in the Pro 14 because I don't necessarily think it's enough of a an upgrade, but, but there's no doubt if, if, if you're talking about the, the four best provinces in South Africa, you know, that is, a, that is a different matter entirely. You know, we've got this bizarre situation at the moment where New Zealand are looking to plough their own field a little bit, which is understandable. You know, I get what they're doing there, but 
you know, they could end up playing five or six Bledisloe Cup matches against Australia only. And the South African rugby is, you know, unless, you know, South Africa are world champions, you know, they've, um, they're, they're a bit of a draw at the moment, both domestically and in international level. You know, they're sort of being being frozen out a little bit of the, uh, of, of the rugby championship. So maybe they're looking up north. And I don't think it's too, uh, too, too crazy an idea. You know, I've, we've all travelled to South Africa overnight. Yes, they're in a different hemisphere, but it does make a lot of sense geographically and, and logistically for, for, for us to have more touch with South Africa maybe than, than other countries. So I'm interested. I mean, I think that we've, we've got to be creative at the moment with our, with our fixture list and our structures. And if that means South Africa play more regularly, either through their, through their clubs, provinces or internationally, then, then I'm kind of all for it, really. Chris, you have a significant South African background. Um, what's your view of the four big provinces joining across all that distance? Well, let's be, let's be absolutely honest here. The reason that will happen is for TV, isn't it? You've got to have a new TV deal to get new money in for South yeah. Africa. They, you know, they, need, they need the dosh. And uh, what a great idea to, you know, to put you know, Leinster versus the Stormers. Yeah, what a fantastic match that would be. And this, it, it, you know, half of South African top 15, 16 players are playing in Europe already anyway. So it'd be nice to see the rest of them up here as well. And uh, it could work. I think it's a last resort for the Pro 14 to, to go that far because you are going to come up against a lot of logistical problems. And quite honestly, it can't be considered at the moment because the COVID problem in, in South Africa, as we know, in terms of the Lion Store, is really serious. So everybody's sort of sitting back and wondering what will happen. But as, as a, a possibility, it's hugely exciting. Making it happen will be rather more difficult, but I can see the TV executives rubbing their hands together saying, we'd like some of this. I'm outvoted 2-1 there, but I read a piece this morning which said Sikhalisi, Johnny Sexton and Alan Wynne-Jones all playing in the same tournament. Well, uh, that's that's great. But in fact, they don't play in the Pro 14 very, very, or very, very infrequently. Johnny Sexton has played one game in his whole career away in Wales. So I don't think it necessarily means that the full teams come. But OK, I accept that, it, that it's worth a try. Uh, I think the big news in the Pro game is that, as Lawrence said, Harlequins are allowed crowds this week, probably up to, possibly up to 4,000. To be fair, uh, Murrayfield got there slightly before them with about 700 on Friday night. 4,000 is a significant number, Lawrence, and it is surely to Harlequins' credit that they have won the right to stage this game. Yeah, I mean, you know, well done to Harlequins. I mean, a, a lot of it, we, we, we interviewed um, Laurie Dalrymple, their CEO, Harlequin CEO on, on BT Sport, and he was at, at odds to, uh, to to say that it uh, some of it was geographical. Um, you know, this is a D, DCMS joint initiative with with the rugby clubs and local authorities, and obviously they want to uh, bring fans back to to all our sports, including rugby, in a in as safe uh, as, and secure environment as possible. So, Quins are uh, the first pilot in rugby. As I said, three thousand eight hundred, I think, is the number. All of those, um, unfortunately, you won't have away fans in the stadium yet. They'll all be season ticket holders. Uh, I was actually talking to a season ticket holder yesterday from Quinns who's very excited. He's in the ballot to uh, to hopefully become one of those 3,800. Obviously, the stadium will be a one, one-way environment. You'll be taken to your seats. And, and maybe it's the way forward for, 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 for sport in general. You know, we've been crying out to be put in a seat and, and served lavishly with uh, with food and drink directly <laughs> in, our, in our seats well that's exactly what's going to happen now the, the world has changed you know you go to a bar now and you and you don't go to the bar you sit at a table and someone comes and serves you and it looks like you'll go to a sports stadium and you'll, you'll sit in your seat 
uh, watch your team and someone will come and serve you. So uh, I think it could be a, a way forward. But but on a serious note, it's uh, it's fantastic. Let, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, everything, this goes as well as it could be. Um, I love the idea that you can track fans now. Um, so Harlequins will know every single person that comes into their stadium, the 3,800. They'll know who they are. They'll know where they live. They'll know their temperature. They'll know everything about them. And uh, all the uh, fans will have to sign up to a code of conduct in terms of the way they behave, because let's be honest, a lot of the success of this of these trials will depend on how fans are, are able to, to stick to the rules, if you like, stick to the laws. And again, you know, it could be the future. You know, I, I, I can see a world in a not too distant future where every single person in the stadium is known to the um, is known to the club or, or, or to the uh, to the fan base, you know, and uh, I mean, that would deal with a lot of issues like security. You know, we mm-hmm. can grow the game, you can market the game. So, yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll work fantastically well. And, and I think, Jonesy, the idea is that by the end of the season, i.e. by round 22, which is October the 4th in the Gallagher Premiership, we might be able to get to a situation where all clubs can have a proportion of their capacity attending. So uh, I, I got the sense from Harlequins and it might be up to a third of the ground could end, could end up coming to watch games. So if you're a Twickenham England supporter, we might see 30,000 people safely and securely at the England Barbarians game. And uh, let's just see how this weekend goes. It's step by step, but it's a very, very good one. Chris, uh, I don't remember ever being served at my seat in the press box. Uh, I've had things thrown at me, but it wasn't food and drink. What do you think? It's a very exciting time, a nervous time. But let's be fair, as Lon said earlier, fans are almost everything, and especially in the tribalism of the Premiership. Yeah, and I think yeah, one thing you should bear in mind with track and trace, it's also great, be great for, for football, wouldn't it? Because Man United could track and trace their fans to see just exactly what areas of London they live in. It'd be absolutely brilliant for them to understand where their where fan base is. But back to rugby and... Uh, Look, the, the Murrayfield uh, 700 were done by postcode, uh, so they knew that they were quite close to Murrayfield so they could come along to the match. Harlequins have worked so hard uh, when Mark Evans got there, you know, just trying to get the local population to actually remember there is a rugby club here in, in, in yeah. Twickenham that you can go and visit. And Harlequins have done really, really well on this. And I think they deserve the chance to lead the way because they know their fans really well. The fans are incredibly loyal. Uh, they've got a good season ticket take-up. So, yeah, give it to them. But as as Lawrence mentioned, this is going to have massive significance for the November internationals. And, you know, we know the unions are absolutely desperate to get some money in. The chance to put 30,000 bums on seats in Twickenham, OK, it will, it will drop the, the income probably from 12 million down to 4 million. But that 4 million is needed at the moment and, and times that by three or four times. And, and suddenly they've actually got some money to, to, to pay people. Maybe they can stop making people redundant. Okay, that's that's a very fair point from our economics correspondent. Um, Lens. And meanwhile, on the weekend, the Premiership goes charging on. Uh, Not quite sure where to, but I have to say that maybe for some people and for me, it's there have been games too far. But at the moment, I'm finding it quite gripping. We're now going to move on to nominate finally our God or Goddess of the week. God or Goddess. Um, I think for me, I'd like to go with the game that I saw at the end of the weekend at the rec. And um, I mean, he's, he's been nominated and, and, and voted for many, many times. But I thought the, uh, well, let, let's go for, for, for both, shall we? The, the, the God of the week will be Wayne Barnes, just in terms of he's just head and shoulders, the best referee in the world. Uh, I really hope he goes on for as long as he possibly can. 
obviously that's a decision for Polly Barnes, not just for Wayne Barnes. But, uh, you know, to have him at the top of our game, he, he's just brilliant. And the players love him, every, the fans love him, uh, and everyone does. And obviously, uh, the goddess of the week has to be his, um, his, his very able assistant, uh, who, was on the t- who was the assistant referee. And as you say, Jonesy, I just think, you know, we give, we give our referees a hard time sometimes. I mean, I used to spend, make a career out of it, really. But uh, <laughs> it's, um, it is, uh, they, they, are, they are brilliant at what they do. And, and when they do it to the best of their ability, yeah, it's, it's just a sight to behold. So, uh, so well done to those two at the weekend. Uh, they're our god and goddess of the week. So early vote for uh, Wayne Barnes and Sarah Cox, Chris. Uh, I would certainly uh, back uh, Lawrence on on Wayne. I thought he was absolutely fantastic, and uh, we all thought he was becoming a sort of a media lovey, wasn't he? And he's, he's, he can still get on the pitch and, and blow the whistle, which is fantastic. My goddess, yeah, tip my hat to to Sarah. But Amy Perrett, Super Rugby match, Brumbies versus the Force. What a major breakthrough there for women's refereeing, and. Uh, you know, there's, there should be more of these stories we should be talking about with Sarah and Amy doing so very well. And uh, it's, it's, great, yeah. it's great to see and hopefully it'll become more normal that we won't have to pick it out and say, wow, look at that. That's an unusual. We will be covering the women's game next week in some depth. But uh, until then, um, I'm not going to go carry on with the loving uh, for, for officials. I think I'll be the dissenting voice and I'm really going to go for Dan Robson. Luke James would have been my other pick, but uh, I just thought Dan Robson was absolutely epic. Guys, thanks to Lawrence Daly and Chris Jones, always two of the, uh, the spikiest and the most listenable of our uh, of our members. Uh, don't forget to listen to Slotty with Dylan Hartley later in the week, otherwise Slotty will sulk. So please tune in for that. Two reps this week. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Lawrence and Chris. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.